is Full Preterism, A Damnable Heresy, Part 2. And uh, I'm going to read from Acts 1, 9 to 11. And today we're going to focus more on the, we looked at the resurrection last week. And today I want to focus more on the second coming of Christ, because that's a very critical doctrine. So if you don't care one bit about full preterism, and maybe you don't, you're going to learn a whole lot about the second coming of Christ today. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, and these are present tenses. They were, they were staring, gazing. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? And here's the critical sentence. This same Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And we'll look at that passage in a moment. Just the, po the point is that there's every reason to believe there's a literal bodily second coming of Christ where he returns to earth in like manner. And in the Greek, that means in the same manner. We've been looking at the heresy that has become more popular, in, uh, especially among Reformed people in the last 40 years, full preterism. Uh, this is the teaching that the, everything associated with the second coming of Christ typed by the apostles in the New Testament was fulfilled in A.D. 70 when Jesus came in judgment on Israel and Jerusalem. Because they believe everything has come to pass, they are forced to deny, number one, a future literal bodily resurrection of the saints. <coughs> number two, a literal rapture of the saints. Okay, those who are resurrected from the dead come out of their tombs, meet Christ near. Those who are living while Christ returns uh, will be transformed and meet Christ in the air as he's returning. <clears throat> Three, a literal bodily second coming of Jesus at the end of the New Covenant era, which is the end of this world. Four, a future consummate kingdom in which everything associated with the fallen world order is completely defeated, overthrown, and fully replaced by a new redeemed order in which sin, suffering, sorrow, temptation, rebellion, disease, calamity, violence, and death are no more forever. That obviously hasn't happened yet, has it? Things in the West, in the Western nations that were once professedly Christian nations, are actually getting worse. Sodomite marriage, you can't even define what a woman is. All the great perversions in our society, which are uh, advocated by people in civil government, the Democrats especially. <clears throat> Their perverted view forces them to embrace heresies related to God's creation before the fall. They argue that outside of Eden, even before the fall, death, violence, bloodshed, suffering, reigned among the animals, reptiles, birds, and fish, etc. <clears throat> in other words, according to their view, God looked down on his creation, which was red in tooth and claw, death, suffering, disease, and slaughter, and proclaimed all of it to be very good. Now, if you've ever watched these nature shows and you've seen a lion catch a deer and uh, grab it by the neck and rip it apart, uh, if you think that's good, well, it's good for the lion's stomach, I guess, but it's certainly not very good uh, as God would define things before the fall. Now, before we consider, there are a few, th uh, we're going to look at the second coming in detail. There are a few things that we should mention. First, full preterism is, is in my view, an overreaction against the tendency among evangelical teachers who completely ignore time indicators in various passages, who then apply passages referring to Jesus' coming in judgment on Israel to the second bodily coming of Christ. And you see these guys, and these evangelical preachers, and they preach on Matthew 24, and they completely ignore the time indicators and apply everything to the second coming. Jesus, I think it's verse 34, says, hey, all these things, everything I just talked about, will come upon this generation. They completely ignore that. Now, I know there's some Reformed commentators, uh, like I think Hendrickson, who wants to say, well, there's a double fulfillment in some of these things. Or they'll say, in the midst of discussing the destruction of Jerusalem, he looks forward into the future. So there's people that say that. But a lot of evangelicals, they just talk about these things and completely ignore 
the fact that he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. While many evangelicals are guilty of ignoring context and time indicators regarding our Lord's judgment discussions regarding Israel, full preterists ignore, redefine, and pervert passages that obviously cannot fit into their AD 70 paradigm. And we're going to look at that today in detail. We're going to cover completely different material than I covered last week. And uh, if we get to it, we'll get to, we'll have to get to First uh, Corinthians 15 at a later time, because it's really devastating. Biblical interpretation must not only take seriously context and time indicators, but also the analogy of Scripture. That's why you're supposed to read your Bible a lot. You cannot understand, and, and Jay Adams has a great book on this, on biblical interpretation. Jay Adams wrote a really good book on this, one of the best. You've got the, the narrow context, you've got the broader context of the epistle or what's going on in, 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 within that section of the epistle. And then you have to know the, the analogy of Scripture. You have to know Scripture as a whole, really, to interpret any particular section of Scripture properly. And if you don't do that, you'll make all kinds of stupid mistakes. <clears throat> the New Testament is, teaching is very clear regarding, number one, a worldwide literal end of history. Excuse me, a worldwide literal bodily resurrection of all the dead, both good and evil, at the end of history. We looked at that last week. It's taught in both Testaments very clearly. Uh, number two, a literal bodily second coming of Christ. He literally, the God-man, the theanthropic mediator, uh, with his scars, with his real body that has came out of the grave, will come back to earth. Literally, just as we read in Acts, he's going to come and he's going to descend to earth. Three, a literal rapture of the saints who were in their graves, uh, or who were alive at his coming. And then, number four, a literal coming consummate kingdom where death and sin are forever defeated. And Paul goes into detail in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> Paul is discussing, he's refuting people who say that the resurrection has already occurred. And he's, he's, he's basically saying, if you believe that, then in a sense you're denying the resurrection of Christ and his victory at the end of history. And then second, we must emphasize once again that the historic Christian church throughout its whole history has vigorously opposed the main teachings of the full preterist movement. You can read Arrhenius and Justin Martyr, the early church fathers, throughout the Middle Ages, throughout the Reformed churches, the Lutheran churches, the Anglican churches, the Baptist churches. They all teach a literal coming of Christ. They all deny full preterism and teach that it's a heresy. <clears throat> All those who denied a literal resurrection of the dead, bodies of flesh coming out of the grave, were declared heretics and opposed by the church fathers. They opposed both rank pagans who denied the resurrection, the Athenians, of course, Paul, Pliny, Cecilus, and all those who may have regarded themselves as Christians but were heretics. Sater Saturninus, Basilides, uh, Corpocrates, the Gnostics, the Marcionites, the Manichaeans, and then later we would have the Socinians. The Socinians denied a bodily resurrection, and they were opposed vigorously by Calvin and the Reformers. The doctrine of the second bodily literal coming of Jesus and the resurrection of the literal physical body in which we one lived from the dead have been cardinal fundamental doctrines of Christianity from the very beginning. Now I know full pederasts, and I've heard them, they mock well, let's say you're, you drowned in the ocean and you're eaten by a shark, and then the shark poops, and then the shark, uh, his poop is eaten by bacteria, and they go on and on and on. Of course, we know that all the bodies from the Titanic have completely dissolved by now, and all that's left, if you, if you go to the, I've watched this on, on YouTube, if you go to the bottom of the ocean, the bodies are all gone. All that's left are the shoes, and it's really sick. You'll see a mother's shoes, and next to the mother's shoes, you'll see the baby's shoes. And, and they, they mock and say, well, how could there possibly be a resurrection? And, of course, God created everything. With God, that is not impossible at all. It's just unbelief. God is all-powerful. If he created the universe, he can certainly raise people from the dead from the bottom of the ocean. And, in fact, in Revelation, I didn't get to it today, but in Revelation it talks about those coming out of the oceans and those coming out of the graves, and etc. Wherever they die, they come forth. Even if you're... Uh, burned up to ashes and sprinkled in the Pacific Ocean, God, of course, can rise you from the dead. God is God. So that's a stupid objection. <clears throat> the 
The doctrine that the second bodily literal coming of Jesus and the resurrection of the literal physical body in which we once lived from the dead have been cardinal, fundamental doctrines of Christianity from the very beginning. The early fathers maintained the doctrine of the resurrection of the body with great earnestness and unanimity against the objections of Neoplatonists and skeptics. <clears throat> they believed in the resurrection of the very same material body that died. Only those who were from the school of Alexandria, who were strongly influenced by Greek philosophy, held a spiritual view and did not insist on a physical, literal resurrection. Okay, so those who are infected with Neoplatonism, which regards your physical substance as inferior and bad, and your spiritual substance as good. That's not a Hebrew view. That's not a biblical view. These views were rejected by the church and did not influence the ecumenical councils or creedal statements. An honest, full preterist cannot affirm or confess the Apostles' Creed, the Creed of Chalcedon, and the Constantinopolitan Creed, A.D. 381, or any of the Reformed symbols, in a, any Evangelical or Lutheran symbols as well. The, uh, the, the early creeds of the Church will have a list of things you have to believe to be a Christian, and on that list is the resurrection of the dead and the second bodily coming of Christ is on that list. They can't affirm that. They're not Christians. In addition, from Zwingli, Luther, Calvin, Knox to the present, there is not one Reformed or Evangelical theologian who agrees with the full preterist position. Not one. On the resurrection, the full preterist has aligned himself with the Socinians, who were strongly condemned by Reformed theologians as heretics. Francis Turrington, who is the uh, third generation after, or second generation after Calvin, writes, it is not inquired whether they will be the same bodies as to qualities and conditions. For we confess that we, they will undergo a great change so as to be no longer animal, corruptible, weak, miserable, and mortal, but spiritual, incorruptible, strong, glorious, and immortal, as the Apostle fully teaches, 1 Corinthians 15. Rather, it is inquired as to substance whether they will always remain numerically the same, that is, the same body placed in the grave. Those Socinians deny, we affirm this. We affirm this. In other words, we don't deny that the physical body will undergo amazing change at the resurrection. It's going to be a body that can pass through walls. It's going to be a body that cannot get sick or even be tempted or sin. It's going to be a body that lives forever. It's going to be an immortal body. But it is the same body that was in the grave. Third, <clears throat> there are radical differences between a coming in judgment and a literal bodily coming, and later I'll look at the different comings in Scripture, that render the full preterist position impossible. And we'll briefly examine these differences before returning to the resurrection of the body. So we're going to do a section today called Coming in Judgment versus a Literal Bodily Coming of Christ. Of Christ. Before we analyze... Uh, and I have it at the end, carefully analyze the coming of judgment described in Matthew 24 and the second bodily coming described in other passages, we will see major differences between these comings. The coming of Jesus in judgment in Matthew 24 against Israel does not involve Jesus leaving heaven and descending to earth. He never leaves the right hand of God the Father. But rather it is, and we'll look at this in detail, it is the sign, the proof, that Christ is at God's right hand in heaven. And let me just mention this. It is helpful and necessary when discussing the coming of Christ to know that there are different kinds of comings in the New Testament. These different kinds of comings must not be confused. And this is a problem when somebody says, well, here's the word parousia. And it can be translated as presence or coming. <clears throat> and they want to fit everything into a paradigm. Well, let, let us note the differences of the different kind of comings. Number one, Jesus came unto the church through his spirit at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And there are personal comings throughout history and regeneration in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16, 17c, and 18. I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. He dwells in you and will be in 
and, be, and will be in you. Now listen to this. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. How does Christ come to us? In his spirit. Very clear. Number two. Um, there's Jesus coming in presence during a meeting of church sessions or courts. That's the Presbyterian interpretation. Courts of judgment. He's in the midst. Or according to other interpreters during the worship service. That's the more popular view today. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Matthew 18, 20. Spiritually present, not physically present. His body's at the right hand of God. Remember, his body, his human body, it's glorified, but it's a real body. It, it can't, it's not infinite. It has to be... It, it, that's why the consubstantiation is heretical. His human body is finite. It's not infinite. <clears throat> In Revelation 1.13, Jesus is in the midst of the seven golden lampstands that represent the specific Christian churches. It is also acknowledged that Jesus is spiritually present during the Lord's Supper. Calvin, of course, held a very bizarre view. He was trying to compromise with Luther. Luther Lutherans believe in a literal physical presence in the meal, in, with, and under the elements, which is uh, a denial of the true humanity of Christ. Calvin, what Calvin taught which is still popular among some people, is that the Christian, somehow during the Lord's Supper, you are mystically transported to the throne room of God to be in the presence of the risen Christ. That's Calvin's view. I don't think there's any evidence for that, but it is interesting. Number three, there's a personal spiritual presence with believers in fellowship. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Number four. There is a coming of Jesus to each believer at their death. <clears throat> John 14, 3. And I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. There you may be also. Now some commentators, a number of commentators, such as J.C. Ryle, believe this is a reference to Jesus' literal second bodily coming, uh, where he retrieves all the resurrected saints. Others believe that Jesus personally welcomes each Christian soul at death. Those are the two main views of that passage. Number five. And there is the coming of the resurrected Christ up, up to heaven, to the Father in heaven, described in Daniel 7.13. This is a literal bodily ascension of Jesus. And our Lord mentions this in John 17.11 and 13a, where he anticipates his ascension. The ascension and enthronement of Christ is mentioned in many prophecies, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, and of course, uh, Daniel, Daniel 7. And there are the comings of Christ in judgment upon Israel and other rebellious nations in history. The coming on the clouds terminology is used, Isaiah 19.1, to judge are not literal comings, except for the second bodily, visible, literal coming of Jesus at the end of history. And then, of course, there's the coming, number seven, the second advent. A literal bodily coming from the right hand of God, the throne room of God, to the earth. Where all the saints meet him in the air and then he, the unity of the eschatological complex. The second coming, the final resurrection of the righteous and, 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 uh, and, the, and the unrighteous, uh, the rapture of the saints, the, the final white throne judgment, the casting of the unbelievers into the lake of fire, and the saints being exalted, etc., that all comes occurs on the, se the same day, the second coming of Christ, and then becomes the eternal state. So just note there are different kinds of comings in Scripture, and you have to look at the context. The second coming involves a literal bodily descent of Jesus from heaven to the earth. Now let's look at Acts 1, 9-11. A very important passage regarding how the second coming of Christ will occur is Acts 1, 9-11. I'll read it one more time. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, those are angels, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as he saw him go into heaven. So the passage plainly teaches that in the same way that Jesus ascended, with his resurrected body, up into the earth's atmosphere until he entered the cloud and disappeared, he will descend, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, in his resurrected body to the earth. Now, there are a number of reasons 
why this passage explicitly teaches a literal, bodily, visible, to the normal human eye, coming of Christ. First, this is indicated by the angelic statement, in like manner, in verse 12. The expression in like manner means literally in what manner, or in that manner in which. The Greek phrase, han trugon, never indicates mere certainty or vague resemblance, but whenever it occurs in the New Testament, denotes identity of mode or manner. You can check J.A. Alexander, you can check the great Greek scholar, C.F.D. Moule, A.T. Robertson, etc. <clears throat> this means that in like manner in this passage could be translated in the same manner. And therefore the New American Standard Bible, which is far better than the NIV, it was used pri primarily in the, the 70s, <clears throat> says, this Jesus will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Moreover, the angels emphasize the sameness with the statement, as you saw him. In like manner, and as you saw him, are essentially expressions of the same idea twice. The fact of his bodily second coming and the manner of it are also described by this emphatic repetition. Hey, don't get this wrong, guys. They repeat it in two different ways. Angels. In this passage, the angels who are giving the disciples information directly from God go out of their way to make sure the disciples do not misunderstand the nature of the second coming of Christ. Don't get this wrong. This is critical. I want you to get this right. God sends them angels. That doesn't happen very often. The last time it happened was when uh, they're sitting on the roll, the tomb is open, and there's an angel. He's not here. He's risen. It will be a literal bodily descent through the Earth's atmosphere. And this is exactly what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. This point is so obvious it is admitted by the full preterist scholar J. Stuart Russell, and I think he's, I've read a bunch of, when I, I studied this, I think it was back in 99, maybe 2000, I forget when I studied this, but I read all these books by these guys, and J. Stuart Russell by far is the best scholar. A lot of these guys are just hacks, they're not good scholars, they don't know exegesis at all. Here's what he says, quote, these words, however, imply that this coming was to be visible and personal, which would exclude the interpretation which regards it as providential or spiritual, end of quote. Second, <clears throat> that this coming is literal bodily visible is emphasized by Luke's account. The disciples were beholding, gazing, that is looking up continuously, it's a present participle, at the resurrected body of Jesus as he ascended. As the disciples saw Jesus go, he will be seen in his return. That <clears throat> the second bodily coming uh, and literal coming is supported by Acts 5, 31-32, where Peter says that the apostles were witnesses of the exaltation of Christ. They were eyewitnesses. And then John and 1 John is great. You know, we beheld, we touched, we saw. The emphasis uh, on this being a witness. This means that the disciples saw the resurrected Savior and watched him ascend into glory with their own eyes. They were not in the throne room when he came up before the Father, and Dan like, for example, Daniel 7, 13 to 14, but saw our Lord ascend until he was taken up in a cloud, Acts 1.9. The second coming will be visible to the naked eye. It is not just a spiritual event or a coming in judgment. Okay, once again, you read about coming on the clouds. Yahweh coming on the clouds to judge Egypt and, and, and to judge Babylon and to judge uh, Medo-Persia and all these nations and so forth. Yahweh didn't literally come down out of a cloud. This is coming in judgment terminology. This, however, we are taught very explicitly. This is a literal coming. The angels are emphasizing this. Literal, bodily, the exact same Jesus that you just had some fish and, and bread with, that you broke bread with, who you touched and handled, who has flesh and bones. This same Jesus is going to come back in the same way. Matthew 24, at least up to verse 33, describes a non-literal, non-bodily coming. The account in Acts 1, 9 to 11 is written in such a clear, detailed manner by the Holy Spirit so that the church would not mess up or twist this doctrine. We do not simply have a description of a historical event, 
But God sent angelic messengers to explain the second coming in relation to what they just witnessed. So no one would make a mistake. That's what baffles me about full preterism. This is explained in such a way a child could understand it. Such angelic explanations are very rare and exceptional. I noted there's an, an angel was stationed at the empty tomb to explain the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. The angels say, to paraphrase, this same Jesus who you lived with for three and a half years, who recently came bodily out of the tomb alive and glorious, will come back to earth in the same manner as you saw him ascend into heaven. There is simply no excuse to get the second bodily coming of Christ wrong. This passage is crystal clear. The Bible could not be any more clear. We are looking forward to a visible, bodily, literal, glorious return of Christ that parallels the ascension, but in reverse. The coming on the cause terminology of Matthew 2430 is taken from the, the poetic metaphor language of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah 19.11, Nahum 1.3, etc., in the Old Testament, Jehovah did not literally come to judge the nations riding on clouds. Acts 1, 9-11, however, teaches that just like the apostles, the people will be able to see Jesus' body. Our Lord's body was never seen in A.D. 66-70 to because he did not literally return. His body was in heaven. The sign is not Jesus coming in the sky. The sign, and we'll get to this, is that Jesus is at the right hand of God and he's now ruling. The ascension of Jesus into the cloud probably refers to the Shekinah presence of God the Father, although it could be a cloud of angels that God allowed the disciples to see. We don't know. It certainly does not refer to a cloud or clouds of judgment. This is not a scene of judgment. Full preterists say, oh, see, a cloud's mentioned. Oh, it fits with Matthew 24 perfectly. No, Matthew 24, he comes on a cloud in judgment, figuratively, here's a literal ascension. The scene is the glorification of Jesus by his ascent up to the throne room of God to sit as the theanthropic mediator king over everything in heaven and on earth. And the disciples, of course, would be reminded of the prophecy of Daniel 7, 13 to 14, a prophecy that evangelicals get wrong all the time. Listen carefully to what it was, what it says. This is Daniel. I was watching in the night visions. He's having a vision. And behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. So he's coming. The Son of Man is Jesus. Where is he coming? Is he descending to the earth? No. He came to the Ancient of Days. He's ascending. He's coming up. Daniel's seeing the vision from the perspective of the throne room of God. He's coming up to the Ancient of Days. That's God the Father. <clears throat> All scholars agree that's God the Father. And they brought him near before him. <clears throat> and this seals it. Verse 14, that to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one that shall never be destroyed. That's the ascension. The visible, bodily, literal nature of the second coming is also taught in the epistles. Paul refers to the coming of Jesus as a revelation or a time when he is revealed. Christ shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, 2 Thessalonians 1.7. <clears throat> Believers are to eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.7. Our Lord ascended and visibly disappeared into heaven, but a time is coming when he will descend, that is, there will be a visible movement in the opposite direction, and all believers will behold this glory, which had not been visibly disclosed to them before. He will be unveiled at the second coming, and the saints will admire and glorify him, 2 Thessalonians 2.10. The word admire, thamazo, which is sometimes translated marvel or wonder in this passage, clearly contains the idea of wonder and astonishment. Jesus' eschatological revelation will bear the features of a strictly momentary miraculous act. The end is catastrophic in the absolute sense, um, <clears throat> we have the very idea of suddenness and unexpectedness in here um, is associated with the word. Now, I like to think, a good example, 
think of how you were when you saw the plane fly into the building on 9-11, if you're old enough to remember that. I, I saw the second plane hit. And think of the shock. People's, and the people in the street looking at that, and their mouths are hanging open. They're in total shock. That's nothing in comparison to Jesus coming back. Another passage is, which teaches that we will see Christ when he appears is 1 John 2, 28-3-2. And now little children abide in him. <clears throat> Why? Abide in Christ. Keep that fellowship close. Keep it tight. Live a holy life. Be godly. Why? That when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we shall know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Wonderful passage. In verse 28, John commands believers to continue to abide in Christ and maintain proper fellowship with him so that when he appears, they will not be ashamed. You want to be leading a godly life when Christ comes back. You don't want to be backsliding. The word translated appears, New King James or the New American Standard Bible, or shall appear, the old KJV, is phenerophe, which means he shall be manifested. Paul uses the same word to describe the second coming of Christ in Colossians 3.4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. <clears throat> These are all references to, if you're, if you're dead, you'll be resurrected and appear with him in glory. If you're still alive, you'll be transformed and appear with him in glory. The word manifested means to be visible. It can mean that something is revealed or made plain to the senses, especially sight, or is made clear to the understanding. It is used by Paul and John in a similar manner to apocalypse thy, to be revealed or unveiled. See 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 3.13, Romans 2, 5, 8, 18, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. In fact, phenerothothe is therefore translated revealed in 1 John 3, 2. It is obvious that John is speaking about the second coming and that being ashamed before him implies the final judgment. In 3.2, we are not only told that Jesus will be revealed, manifested, or unveiled before the saints, but that will believers will see him when he returns. The verb here, hapsometha, the future tense of horao, is always used of a physical or a beholding with the eyes. It is, we have seen with our eyes the life manifested, we have seen. Obviously, seeing with the eyes is a literal sensation. The apostles saw, heard, touched, handled the Messiah. If John were using the same verb in a non-literal matter in 1 John 3, 2, then we would expect the apostle to indicate such in the immediate context. However, he does not. This is a literal seeing of the Son of Man when he is manifested, when he is revealed, when he returns. This is a glorious promise. So at the second coming, we're going to receive glorified bodies like Christ's glorified body, and we will behold the glorified Savior. Believers will surround the mediator and admire him. They shall see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Revelation 22, verse 4. That's what it says. When Jesus is manifested, he will appear. We will appear with him in glory, Colossians 3, 4. We will meet the Lord in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Our Lord, Philippians 3, 21, will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Once again, the comparison between Christ's resurrection and our bodily resurrection, which rules out the idea that it's simply a metaphor for some kind of spiritual work in the soul, like regeneration. No, it's a bodily resurrection. As Christ rose, you will rise. This passage, like the others we have considered, poses insurmountable exegetical difficulties for the full preterist. If he shall be manifested does not refer to something visible, then what does it mean? Well, it cannot mean a coming of Christ's Spirit, for that already occurred at Pentecost. It cannot mean regeneration, for John is writing to believers. It cannot refer to a subjective existential experience alone, for a believer's glorification occurs when he is literally and personally gathered to Jesus and actually beholds him. Moreover, if the word see is used in a non-literal sense of a mental seeing, that is looking or comprehending with the mind only, then why is the future tense used? 
all Bible-believing Christians already see, perceive the theological portrait that Scripture sets forth of Christ, and we exercise our faith toward the Christ presented of Scriptures. The seeing of John, 1 John 3.2 obviously goes far beyond a mental recognition. In addition, living believers did not see Jesus in AD 70 because he never left heaven. They saw the proof that he was in heaven. They saw the sign that the Son of Man is in heaven, which is the burning ruins of Jerusalem. But they didn't see Jesus. And obviously people who weren't born yet didn't see him either. Paul's description of the second coming in 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, 13 to 4, 18 is especially excellent and very clear. But I would have you to know, I would, oh, excuse me, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. He's talking about Christians who are asleep. What does that mean? They're dead. That you sorrow not, even as others who have no hope, which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, in other words, it was revealed to Paul by Christ, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not uh, prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Okay, so those who are asleep, now we know it's those who are dead, physically dead, they're going to be, when Christ returns, those who are in the graves come out first. That's the first thing that happens when Christ starts to descend. There's a resurrection of the, de of the dead Christians. Then we, that is, Christians who are alive, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall ever, <coughs> so we shall ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, be comforted. Don't worry. You know, you've got Christians, beloved. Your, your mom and dad have died, or your grandparents have died, and they were Christians. Don't don't fret. They're going to come out of the tombs. They're going to receive new glorious bodies. They're going to meet Christ in the air with you. If you're still alive, you'll meet them in the air. This passage, <coughs> excuse me, explicitly refutes full preterism. For Paul is discussing why believers should not be distressed or worried about Christians who have died and are buried. They're dead. Paul will point out in plain language that at the second coming, the dead bodies of the saints will be resurrected, will meet Christ in the air, and will fully participate both body and soul in Christ's final victory. The expression, those who have fallen asleep, refers to Christians who have died physically. The verb, koi maomai, occurs 18 times in the New Testament. In four instances, Matthew 28, 13, Luke 22, 45, John 11, 12, Acts 12, 16, it is used in the literal sense of sleeping. Literal sleeping. You know, you're taking a nap. You're asleep in the boat. But in all other cases, it is used metaphorically and euphemistically for being dead. The apostle is discussing what will happen to believers who have died physically and then have been placed in a tomb or grave. And this interpretation is supported by verse 16, where Paul says that the dead in Christ will rise first. Only a Christian can be dead and in Christ at the same time. So it can't refer to regeneration. It can't refer to some spiritual experience. Because once you're regenerated, you're no longer dead spiritually. You're alive spiritually. The unregenerate are spiritually dead because they are not in Christ. Interestingly, the apostle uses the same word, anastasis, to describe the resurrection of Christ in verse 14 and the resurrection of the dead believers in verse 16. A physical, bodily, literal resurrection is what Paul has in mind here. It can't be interpreted any other way without completely distorting Scripture and perverting Scripture and twisting Scripture. The use of the term sleep to describe physical death is common in Scripture. I, give, I name about 12 passages, as well as in pagan literature. This is understandable in that a dead person looks as though he's sleeping. This term is especially appropriate for believers who after death are at rest from their suffering and labors and are waiting for their physical bodies to come to life and be transformed at the resurrection. Our word cemetery comes from the same Greek word, kometamai, which means a sleeping place. I don't know if you know that. The word cemetery means a sleeping place. That's what it means. 
a sleeping place. Those who attempt to form a doctrine of soul sleep from the use of this term in Scripture must ignore the many clear passages which teach that the souls of Christians immediately go to be, to be with Christ. Luke 23, 40, 43, Philippians 1, 21 to 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Revelation 6, 9 to 11, and 20, verse 4. And the passages which prove that the souls of the wicked go straight to hell at death. Luke 16, 22 to 26, Revelation 20, 14 and 21, 8, etc. See, it's, soul sleep's clearly a heresy. When you die, you either go to heaven and you go to hell. A shocking, sobering doctrine. But we have to believe it. That's what Scripture says. The fact that Paul is discussing believers who are dead physically and buried poses insurmountable difficulties for preparers who attempt to spiritualize this passage or make it refer to something that happens on the inside of people who are alive. It cannot refer to regeneration or mere internal work of the Spirit because those people are physically dead and they are already in Christ. If you're already in Christ, it can't refer to regeneration. Moreover, it cannot refer to a transfer of the souls of unbelievers who are trapped in Hades to be with Jesus in heaven. Excuse me, the souls of believers who are trapped in Hades to be with Jesus in heaven because the scripture unequivocally teaches that the souls of unbelievers go to be with our Lord the very moment they die. We will see that only a real, literal, bodily resurrection of deceased believers does justice to this passage. And the Hades thing, that the souls of believers are in Hades and they're let out, that's complete nonsense. I'm not going to disprove it here, but I've taught it up on it before. <clears throat> After stating the reason for this topic in verse 14 and following, Paul begins his argumentation as to why believers have no reason to grieve over dead Christian loved ones. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring, bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Verse 14. Believers can be relieved of their sorrows only by understanding the full salvific implications of our Lord's death and resurrection. For Paul, the death and resurrection of Christ are the starting point of any discussion of salvation, even the redemption of our bodies. Once again, Jesus died to save the whole man, not just the soul, but the soul and the body, the spirit and the body, even the redemption of our physical bodies at the resurrection. Paul essentially says we believe in A, the death and resurrection of Jesus, therefore we should also understand and believe in B, that all those united to Christ will be raised from the dead to accompany him on his glorious return. The death and resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of the future resurrection of all physically dead believers. That's exactly what the passage is saying. And the only reason they twist it is because it disproves their crazy theories, their heresies. Now, the full preterist who attempts to spiritualize this passage and make it speak only of a spiritual resurrection must, of course, ignore the broad context of Scripture on the effects of Jesus' work on the elect. Union with Christ in his death and resurrection is the foundation of our regeneration and sanctification. Ephesians 2, 5-6, Colossians 2, 13-14, Romans 6, 3-11. As well as the resurrection of our physical bodies. The Bible teaches both. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, Romans 8, 11, 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23. Our Lord, Jesus, in the Gospel of John, spoke of two separate and distinct resurrections of believers. John 5. The first resurrection, which is spiritual, involves a person becoming a Christian in this life and believing, being delivered from spiritual death to everlasting life. Here's what he says. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come to judgment, but has passed from death into life. It's not physical death. It's spiritual death because he's still alive. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verses 24 and 25. So the first resurrection is not directly connected to dead physical bodies, but to people who need salvation. They're alive physically. They need to be saved. They need to listen to the word of God and believe. It was occurring in the Savior's own day. Jesus says, and now is. It's happening right now. In my gospel ministries, I preach the truth. People are believing and being saved right now, and now is. And of course, it's progressively accomplished in history as people believe in Christ. The second resurrection is physical in character and applies to the final day of human history when our Redeemer returns to bodily to this earth. Listen to what he says, verses 28 to 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming, its future, in which all who are in their graves 
will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to a resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. This passage is very explicit. Those who during their lives heard the voice of Christ and became Christians, the first resurrection, will hear his voice again, calling them out of their tombs, their graves, to experience both body and soul, the fullness of resurrection life in the kingdom of glory, the second resurrection. And of course, we, we noted last week that when, when Christ is teaching on the resurrection, he's very likely alluding to passages in Daniel and Isaiah, which use the same kind of lecture, uh, language. The resurrection of the righteous, the resurrection of the wicked. The Bible teaches that he saves the whole person, both body and soul. The full preterist spiritualizing of the final resurrection is essentially Gnostic and Neoplatonic. The fact that verse 29 speaks of the resurrection of both the good and the evil, in other words, there is a general or universal resurrection of men, proves that a mere spiritual resurrection is not being taught. If it was only spiritual, then Jesus would be teaching that the souls of the wicked are brought out of hell to be judged and sent back to hell. Which doesn't make any sense at all. But our Lord emphasized in another place that what makes this judgment so terrifying for the wicked is that both body and soul will be cast into the abyss. Matthew 10, 28, he's talking about the final judgment. Do not fear those who kill the body. Okay, I know as Christians you're going to be persecuted. Some of you are going to be killed. People are going to hate your guts. Remember, the Jews hated Christians. And they, they, they taught the Romans to hate Christians too. And they killed Christians. They murdered Christians. Don't fear those people, Jesus says. But rather fear him. <clears throat> who was able to destroy both body and soul in hell, Matthew 10, 28. So you can't spiritualize that. It doesn't mean he's going to uh, destroy both soul and soul in hell. No, body and soul. Paul distinguishes between dead believers and the wicked dead by the expression, they sleep in Jesus, verse 14. Remember, the souls of believers are not asleep or dead, but only their physical bodies. The rotting corpses of Christians are not regarded by God as garbage, disposable garbage to be left forever behind in the ground, but are said to be in Christ. He says that about your dead body. How anti-Gnostic, how anti-Neoplatonic can you get? The Greeks would hate that idea. And they objected when Paul brought up the resurrection when he was preaching to the Greeks. Paul is telling us, that the efficacy of Jesus' death and resurrection for believers does not stop when they die and their souls go to heaven. Rather, it continues until the physical bodies of Christians are fully redeemed at the resurrection and accompany the Redeemer in his climactic victory at the end of history. Now, for clarification, let's note some differences, just briefly, and I'll do this again later, between Matthew 24, 1-34 and the second and final coming of Christ. Number one, the coming in A.D. 66-70 was a coming in judgment, while the second coming is a literal bodily coming. Matthew 24, uh, comp uh, Matthew, uh, compare Matthew 24-30 to Acts 1, 9-11. Number two, in the coming in judgment upon Israel, Jesus is never seen by the physical eye because he remains in heaven. Acts 24-30, it's the sign, and we'll look at this in a moment, it's the sign that Jesus is at the right hand of God in heaven. The one you crucified is now Lord and Christ. He's, in, he's at God's right hand. Number three, the coming of judgment upon Israel is the be, near the beginning of the millennium, while the second bodily coming occurs at the end of the millennium, which must last at a minimum 1,000 years, Revelation 27 to 9. Now, scholars, except historicists who take the 1,000 years literally, and that's already been disproven because they say the reign of the Pope's going to last for 1,000 years. Well, the reign of the papacy has already lasted 1,500 years, so the literal historicist view is clearly unscriptural. Um, but scholars believe that the 1,000 years is symbolic of a very long period of time. And, and David Chilton and other scholars have gone into great detail showing out the term 1,000. Sometimes it's used literally. But... For example, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What does that mean? God owns all the cattle on all the hills. How many hills are in the world? A lot more than a thousand. Hundreds of thousands of hills exist. There are thousands of hills just in the state of California. It has almost, it's already been almost 2,000 years since Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God with power by his resurrection. 
even J. Stuart Russell, the greatest of the full Preterist scholars, admits that the thousand-year millennium cannot be harmonized with the only 40 years between Matthew 24 and the destruction of Israel. It's funny, he, he's, he's honest enough, well, he, when he sees a passage that refutes his position, he'll admit that it refutes his position, but he just ignores it anyway. It's really bizarre, but he's, at least he's honest. Number four, the judgment upon Israel is followed by a lengthy period of history called the times of the Gentiles. Luke 21, 24, Romans 11, 25 to 26. The second and final coming is followed by the general resurrection, final judgment, and the perfect final state where there is no more death, disease, suffering, wars, tears, or temptation. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17, Revelation 27 uh, to 21, 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 to 26. It is obvious that these things have not yet occurred. I have absolute proof that full preterism is false, a lie, a heresy of the devil. If you go to a graveyard, some if you go to a graveyard and you dig up a grave, there's a dead body there. So the resurrection hasn't happened yet, has it? They have to spiritualize everything away, which is the same thing modernists and liberals do. The full preterists can only explain these things by spiritualizing, allegorizing, and redefining the plain language of the biblical text. They're no different than liberals. A liberal would say, I believe in the resurrection of Christ, but then he doesn't believe in a literal, real resurrection. He'll define it as some spiritual thing. You know, oh, uh, the resurrection of Christ means that he lives in your hearts when you think about what a wonderful ethical teacher he was. Well, full preterists do the same thing with eschatology. They allegorize, they, they spiritualize things away so they don't longer mean what scripture means. That's what heretics do. <clears throat> Number five. In the period of the Jewish war, AD 66 to 70, the Christians fled to Pella and escaped the destruction of the Romans. In the second bodily coming of Christ, the living saints are raptured. That is, they leave the earth to meet Christ in the air, the lower atmosphere, as he descends. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17. Number six. In AD 66 to 70, the enemies of Christ in the church, the unbelieving Jews, are under siege in Jerusalem. So the Jews who rejected Christ are under siege in Jerusalem. Okay? But in Revelation 20, which describes the end of the millennium, the events near the end of the millennium, the saints of God or Christians are pictured under siege, verse 9. So it can't be both. AD 70, the Jews are under siege. And over two million died. Two and a half million died, according to Josephus. Revelation 20, at the end of the millennium, Christians are under siege and they're delivered by Christ. So this is an explicit contradiction of the events of AD 70, for not one Christian remained in the holy city. They all, due to the prophecy of Christ in, 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 in uh, Matthew 24, which is repeated in diff slightly different in Mark and Luke, they escaped. And then number seven. The prophecies regarding the widespread conversion of Israel sometime in the future, after the times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled, have obviously not yet occurred. See Zechariah 10, uh, 12, verse 10, 13, 1, 2, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 15, and 16, and especially Romans 11, 25, 29. Has there been a widespread conversion of Jews? A huge widespread revival to the true religion? No, it hasn't happened yet. They still hate the gospel. When I was in Philadelphia, I, was going, I went to seminary in Philadelphia, and we'd go witnessing. The hardest people to witness to were, we'd go to these Jewish neighborhoods north of Philadelphia. The, Jew, the Jewish Jews moved out of Philadelphia when the blacks came in, and they all moved up north. A lot of them did. They're like, what are you doing? Get out of here. They, they were insulted by the gospel. They're blinded. Still. Paul tells us at some point in the future that the hardening of ethnic Israel will come to an end and there will be a widespread revival of the true Christian religion. Even if one interprets all Israel as the whole number of the elect who will be saved out of ethnic Israel over time, I think that's Ritterboss's position, some of the Dutch like that view, one must still reject full preterism for ethnic Israel, for ethnic Jews are still coming to Christ almost 2,000 years after Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, all the body of the elect Jews have not come. So if you take Ritterboss's view or the Dutch view, popular view among the Dutch, or you take the traditional Puritan view or the Reformed view that there will be a widespread revival of the Jews in the future, neither of them have happened yet.
What do full preterists do? I guess they have to ignore that. As we continue to look at the second coming of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and following, there are a number of other indicators that render the full preterist position impossible. First, and I'll be, I'll be brief because we're running out of time, Christ descends from heaven. The verb kata bino means literally to go down. Kata down, bino to go. Although the verb can refer to various kinds of motion that people do on the ground, such as going or walking, Mark 15.32, Acts 24.1, here it can only mean a descent from heaven toward the earth. Jesus, we are told in verse 17, is going to meet the Lord, <coughs> meet the resurrected saints and the believers who are alive in the air, the earth's atmosphere. Our Lord descends and the saints rise and are caught up to meet him. Full preterists attempt to spiritualize this scene, must ignore the plain meaning of the language in order to posit only a coming in judgment. This passage is obviously not a simple cloud judgment scene, but rather a literal bodily descent. Jesus is coming back as a theanthropic mediator, the God-man, to judge the quick and the dead. According to 1 Corinthians 15.23-24 and other passages, this concludes the millennium and fallen human history and begins the consummate kingdom. It's taught very explicitly in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ will hand the kingdom over to the Father. His role as the high priest in heaven at the right hand of God, interceding for his saints, that role is not necessary anymore because saints are now perfected. He doesn't need to be praying for the saints 24 hours a day and interceding for them anymore because they're, they're perfected. Second, those dead in Christ will rise first. The descent of Christ leads immediately to the resurrection of the saints, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Here Paul focuses on an area in which the Thessalonians needed assurance. The, the Christians who are already dead when Jesus returns will rise before anything else occurs. They are not at a disadvantage over the living believers, for their turn will come first. Those Thessalonians who mourn excessively or were tempted to do so should be relieved to discover that dead believers receive the equivalent of a first-class accommodation at the second coming. When we think of this amazing scene, we must keep in mind the teaching of Acts 1, 9-11. Our Lord's descent to earth is not instantaneous, but rather will be characterized by a kind of majestic leisureliness. There will be a time for the souls of those who have fallen asleep to leave their heavenly abodes, to be reunited with their bodies, and then in those gloriously raised bodies to ascend to meet the Lord in the air. So Jesus isn't going to immediately flash and be on earth like in Star Trek where they beam somebody down. He's going to come out, visibly. And then third, and we better stop, because I'm running out of time. After speaking of the summons to the dead in Christ to rise first, Paul proceeds with a discussion of what happens to the living saints at the Savior's return. Verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain, that is, Christians who are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The word then, epietta, simply means then after, and it is used to introduce the second result of the Redeemer's descent. Now, full preterists have attempted to make much out of this word yetta uh, is often used to indicate immediate sequence instead of epietta. The problem with this argument is threefold. Epietta can designate a very short or long period of time, depending on the context. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17, the events described occur as the Lord descends. Consequently, epietta cannot be days or years or all of history, as full preterists may assert. The ascension occurred while the apostles stood and watched, 1 uh, Acts 1, 9-11. There is nothing about a dinner break or spending the night. Number two, the living saints are caught up together to meet the resurrected saints in the air. This indicates a very rapid sequence of events. And I love Greg Bonson's phrase, the unity of the eschatological complex. It occurs on that day, the day of the Lord. Number three, if we follow the full preterist line of reasoning, we do not have one final second bodily coming of Christ, but at least two separate comings or a progressive coming throughout all of history. Both views are clearly unbiblical and exegetically unacceptable. The verb, harpagisthamai, future passive indicative of harpazo, means to catch, seize, carry off, or snatch. Remember how Lindsay talks about the great snatch. The saints with both body and soul are taken and gathered together to be with Jesus. Resurrected saints with their glorified bodies and living saints with their glorified bodies are snatched away from their physical locations to meet Jesus in the air as he descends toward the earth physically. This is the view of all Christian and Greek scholars. The Latin word for harpazo, by the way, is raptus, and this word is the basis of our English word rapture, the rapture of the saints. It's a real event. It will happen.
The rapture is a real event that will occur not at the beginning of a supposed seven-year tribulation, which is based on a false understanding of Scripture, but will take place when Christ returns bodily to this earth. The full preterist is forced by this passage to argue that a literal bodily rapture already occurred in AD 70. But this was kept a secret, and the church had to be uh, restarted by leftover hypocritical or false Christians, and this view is patently absurd and exceptionally rare. Or, another view, the more popular view of the full preterist, is that the rapture of 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is some kind of spiritual event where believers did not really ascend to meet Jesus in the air or atmosphere. This is the most popular interpretation by full preterist. It is obviously wrong and heretical. This view is dependent on the argument that harpazo, strictly defined, does not imply physical movement of any kind. It is based on the idea that air does not mean literal air or the lower atmosphere, but means man's spirit. The rapture happens in man's spirit, they contend. It is a subjective experience rather than an objective historical event. Such thinking is clearly arbitrary, contradicts the analogy of scripture, and does not answer the Thessalonians' concern about loved ones who have died. If you look at their interpretations in context, they're totally absurd. They twist scripture. They don't follow traditional exegesis. They don't follow the grammar. They don't follow the meaning of the words in context. It's just horrible. Their heretical presuppositions force them to arbitrarily twist scripture and posit heretical nonsense. And then I guess I'll have to say, we'll have to do at least one more on this. Uh, I wanted to talk about the differences between Matthew 24 and the second bodily coming of Christ. The sign, which is the burning ruins of Jerusalem, is the, it's the sign that Jesus is in heaven. Not the New American Standard Bible that Jesus is in the sky descending. <laughs> okay? And we'll have to look at that at another time. But I hope this is helpful. Whether you could care less about full preterism, and there's, there's not a lot of people. There's, there's, there's denominations that are full preterists, by the way. Um, and when I dealt with this, I don't know, 20, 23 years ago or so, I, uh, I, I talked to pastors and stuff and interacted with them. There's a guy in Nebraska who has a full preterist church. These guys are heretics. They're damnable heretics. If you can't confess the Apostles' Creed, if you can't confess the Chalcedon Creed or the early church creeds or any of the Westminster standards or any of the reform creeds or confessions or any of the evangelical creeds or confessions or any of the Anglican creeds or if you can't confess those things, you're not a Christian. Jesus is coming back bodily, literally. And the question is, are you ready? Now in our scripture reading today, uh, we read about the remnant, the judgment on Israel by Babylon and God will preserve a remnant. There, a remnant will be saved. Are you going to be part of this vast body of professing Christians who doesn't really believe and doesn't live your life as, you, as though you believe at all, who are nothing but hypocrites? Or are you going to be part of that remnant and dedicate yourself to Christ for living for Christ, sacrificing, placing the kingdom first, placing Christ first, loving God more than material things, loving God more than sin? And that's what this should teach us. Are you ready to meet Christ when he returns? The history is going to go on forever after Christ returns. This 6,000 years or however long the earth has been here, we don't know the exact number. Remember, people used to live a long time. Uh, is just a speck compared to eternity. And what you do now will affect all eternity. So let's get our act together. Let us make sure we're placing Christ first. Believe me, I, you can enjoy good music. You can have a lot of fun. You can have entertainment. and all. I, I'm not against those things at all. But they, have, but they have their place. Christ is first. Spiritual matters come first. And, that's, and when you see these teachings on the second coming, the point is, are you ready to meet Christ? You don't want to be ashamed when he comes because you're living like an idiot, or backsliding or something, you want to be ready. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your dear son. We thank you that he saves us both body and soul by his sacrificial death on the cross, his atonement, 
and of course his powerful resurrection. That is why we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and why we're baptized with the Spirit. That is why we will come out of the tombs with new resurrected bodies. He saves the whole man. We thank you for that, Lord. We certainly don't deserve it. We're rotten sinners. We deserve the opposite. But due to your grace and mercy, you have saved us through your dear son, Jesus Christ. We offer you great thanks, Lord. We, we beg you, Lord, that we could live consistently with gratitude for what you've done for us. Cause us, Lord, bend our hearts. Cause us to love you and appreciate you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>